For most of my childhood growing up in uh, the church, and in fact in this church, the word sanctuary uh, simply had the definition of the building uh, part of the church where you actually did the worship service. And it's taken me 50 years, but I've come to understand where that word got its meaning. And uh, this place has become a place of refuge and security and safety, a place where I can run and hide from all the rest of the world. And in fact, it's become one of the few places where I truly feel sanctuary. And I hope this morning, it's my great privilege and honor to welcome you to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. And I hope this morning that you truly find this sanctuary to be a place of peace and rest and security, a place where you can quietly see God and meet God. I'm going to ask you to join me in the call to worship. Please stand and read responsively. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Please pray with me. Our tender Heavenly Father, as the world throws its darts and anxieties our way, as we try to face the challenges that are out there, both locally and globally, it is a great comfort that we can climb up onto your lap, that we can find a Father's protection, a Father's unconditional love, strength, someone to defend us, someone to lift us up. And I pray today that in every heart in this room that you will impress upon us, impress on each one of us, the fact that we are indeed safe and loved in your hands. Help that message to be clear today and help us to celebrate our relationship with you in this day. In your precious name, amen.
Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of peace, a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. We confess to you, Lord, what we are. We are not the people we like others to think we are. We are afraid even to admit to to ourselves what lies in the depths of our souls. We do not, however, want to hide our true selves from you. We believe that you know us as we are, and yet you still love us. Help us not to shrink from self-knowledge. Teach us to love ourselves for your sake. Give us the courage to put our trust in your guiding power. Raise us out of the paralysis of guilt and fear and take us into the freedom and energy of forgiven people. And for those who through long habit find forgiveness hard to accept, we ask that you would break our bondage and set us free. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.
The Old Testament reading this morning will be from Leviticus and not Exodus, as it says in the bulletin. It will be Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. The Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacle begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present offerings made to the Lord by fire. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed feast, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing offerings made to the Lord by fire. The burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbaths and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the free will offerings you give to the Lord. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day also is a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join with me in the glory of Patri as the ushers prepare to accept your tithes and offerings.
We have this amazing privilege of God's invitation to come to him in prayer, to express our gratitude to him, to to lay before him the burdens and concerns of our hearts. As we pray together this morning, if you would like to use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Holy Father, we thank you for your mercies poured out upon us. You have proven yourself to be powerful, all-powerful, to be perfectly holy, and to be good. And we come before you today offering our our fallible words of praise, believing that you are pleased. Lord, we also come today because you have told us that you are pleased when we pour out our hearts to you with our burdens. As an indication that we believe you are the answer to our needs. This morning we, we think of our world and the needs of our world and we pray for those who are continuing to deal with the Ebola virus, those who are grieving from what has taken place, those who are still struggling with this disease, those who are trying to help. We ask that you would comfort and heal. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters who serve you throughout the world and Today, we especially thank you for the Millers and for what you have done and are doing and their work with the Brew people, and particularly the translation of the scriptures. We pray that your word will indeed not return void, but that your spirit will use the word to help people understand who you are and your invitation to life. We pray for our brothers and sisters who face persecution of all kinds. We think especially of the Christians in North Korea. It's difficult to imagine what their lives are like living with threats and persecution and even more. Give them courage. Help them to know your presence and our prayers and support. And we pray that their witness might actually be a catalyst to even their persecutors coming to faith. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of life, all life. And today we join with people around the world giving thanks and declaring that we believe in the sanctity of human life in every form. We thank you for the gift of life and we pray that you will help us to be people who respect life and who work for the life of every person, born and unborn. 
Lord, we ask that you will help us to think of other people and all of the things that they face the way you do and to value them as you do. Father, we pray for the burdens and concerns right here among us. We pray for all who are grieving today and we think especially of Alton Shea's family. And as we gather for his service this afternoon, we pray that your presence will be with us and that we will sense you ministering to every grieving heart. We thank you for the life of your faithful servant. Thank you for your faithfulness to him. We pray for all who are wrestling with illness and pain. And we especially pray today for Jill Tyson and Priscilla Waltz, for your healing for Vesta Mullen and Tim Nichols, Bruce Brenneman, Bill Roski, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Isla Shea, Dick Gould, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and for all who are on our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers and for the privilege of praying them. We ask that you would continue to work in our hearts as we continue in worship. Give us minds and hearts and souls that are open to you, that we might know you more, and that we might know your life within us. We pray all of this through your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I would ask that if you are able to please stand with me for the reading of the gospel this morning. Found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. 
the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the one who sent me, the father. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. Of all the profound things that Jesus says, it strikes me that perhaps one of the most mind-boggling statements of Jesus is found in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says to his disciples, looks them in the eye and says to them, you are the light of the world. Now, he knows who they are. He knows they don't really get him yet. He understands that, you know, they have a long way to go. And when you read through the Gospels, you see over and over again how many times they misinterpret. They get self-centered. They, they become other, anything other than what he wants from them. Even at the end, Judas betrays him for some money and all the disciples flee. And even in the last hours, they're fighting about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And yet Jesus says to them, you are the light of the world. It blows my mind. And I think we have at least interpreted through the years that Jesus is saying to us, to all of those who are his followers, you are the light of the world. That the world will see the light of God in you. And it blows my mind because I know what I'm like and I have a suspicion of what you're like. That's a tough one. But here's what I've discovered. The light that we shine doesn't come from us. The only way any of us could ever be the light of the world is if the light of Christ is in us. We are never the source of light, no matter how hard we try. We reflect the light. We emit the light. But we're never the source of light. And anytime we attempt to be the source of light, we probably end up creating more darkness than light. And the key comes back to this passage we've just read where Jesus says to the whole group of people there in the, in the temple, I am the light of the world. We know the world is full of darkness. We don't have to convince us. Darkness has often been a symbolism for sin and evil and we see it all the time. One more terrorist attack. Another school shooting. Another war, more violence, corruption. People in government taking advantage of their position. The weak and the vulnerable being taken advantage of. Over and over and over again, we see it. We see the darkness of the world. And Jesus says, in the midst of all this darkness, I want you to be my light. But that will only happen... If the light of Christ is in us first. As you read through the scriptures, light has always been a symbol for God. We see God's presence with light, connected with light. First thing God does in creation is light. First words, let there be light. 
and it pierces the darkness and separates it. When the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, God leads them by light, a pillar of fire by night. He leads them through the desert. When they set up the tabernacle and the temple, God says to them, I want candles burning in this tabernacle, in the temple, all the time, because this light symbolizes my presence with you. And I don't want you to forget that I'm with you. That's one of the reasons why we light candles and we have acolytes. There's nothing magical about lighting these candles. That doesn't change anything. But it is a vivid reminder for us that God is present with us. That he has promised to be with us when we gather. And it's reminding us of that, just as it reminded the Israelites when they gathered. Light has always been connected with the presence of God. And so Jesus says to them, everything you're thinking about God, the ways in which God's presence symbolized in light, protected you, cared for you, comforted you, led you, all the things that you think about God and his relationship with you, I am. I am God. I am the light of the world. The only reason that they didn't try to murder him on the spot is, as he says at the end of this section, they were afraid of the crowd. And I think John says that because most of them wanted to take action against him. They were just fearful to do so. They understood what he was saying. I'm the light of the world, he says. When you go back to chapter 7 of John's gospel, you discover that this dialogue Jesus has takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles, which we read about in Leviticus. The Feast, of, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three great Jewish feasts. Passover, which celebrates the rescue from Egypt. Uh, Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, which is the celebration of the first fruits, the first harvest. And the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. This is a feast that takes Israel all the way back to when they were coming out of Egypt and living in the wilderness. And, and they lived in these, these little shelters. And the Feast of Tabernacles is something that God says to them every year for seven days. I want you to, to move out of your secure, comfortable homes and live in shelters. I, in my mind, I have sort of like little lean-tos. You know, that they, that they live in. Somebody after one of the services said, it sounds like they were going camping. Yeah, something like that, only extremely rustic. You know, so you leave, and I, you know, you, so you leave the comforts of home to go out into the wilderness and rough it. Now, for us, roughing it means we still have a lot of the amenities. For them, not so much. Imagine moving out of your house for a week in just a little lean-to on the side of your house, maybe a little bit of plastic around it or something, and for a week you're cooking meals out there, you're sleeping out there, you're sitting out there. It might be interesting for us to try that. We probably want to do it in July, not in February. It might get even more interesting. But they move out. Now, we would view that as a sacrifice. 
right? I mean, for us, we would say, we, all the time, we're probably saying, when can we get back in the house? You know, when, when can we get back to life normally? But for them, it's not that way. They don't view it as something negative. They don't view it as, as, as you know, the now we're, everything is scarce that we wanted. Because the whole point of it is to remember God was with them. God took care of them. God protected them. He fed them. For 40 years, God is their source of everything. And when you live in a a permanent dwelling, you have a tendency to forget those things. So every year, God says to them, go out, live in this little lean-to so you don't forget. And remember and give thanks for all the ways in which I have helped you and cared for you back then and now. And it becomes a great day of celebration. On the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, all the people gather around the temple and as many as possible come into the court of, the, of, the women, of women and they have this big party. And they have these huge candlestick type things and they have ladders beside them and they have uh, young Levites, young men, who climb the ladders with jugs of oil and they pour them into it. That's how they lit candles and then they light them and they just illuminate everything. What's in, it's interesting, kind of odd, but it is interesting that the wicks of these candles are made from the worn out undergarments of the priests. I don't know why, but that's what they do. Uh, it kind of made me think of, you got to do something with though, their, you know, their special garments that the priest wears when they're in the temple. And so you can't just throw them away. It's sort of like when an American flag gets worn out and you burn it symbolically, and maybe it's the same sort of thing. But they, they light up the whole area, and it's some of the, the holy men, the righteous men, the most respected men, dance. And they dance in celebration. And the other priests and, and Levites, they, they play their instruments while they dance. And there's this huge party, this celebration in the midst of all of this light. As they remember God in their lives, through their history and in the present. And Jesus steps into this, this uh, area of great light and says, folks, this is nothing. I am the light of the world. And anyone who follows me will not stumble in the darkness because I've lit up the path, but you will know the light of life. You will know real celebration and joy and peace and truth and love and everything that you were created to experience. It's in me. If you follow me, I think that's the key word. It's the only thing Jesus really is looking for us to do in response to him being the light of the world and all that he offers. He says, follow him. That the word has this, this connotation. It's used in a, in a variety of ways. One, one way is what you do when you pursue someone that you, you want to catch. It might be a, a thief who... Maybe you've caught in your house and you run to try to get them. It might be someone that you are interested in romantically. 
And, and you are, in a sense, after them. And you do everything possible to help them know how much you care for them. And with the goal in mind that they might care for you. And when you're in that kind of frame of mind, you don't really think about dignity. You're just doing whatever you can do to prove to this person that you're seeking them. That they're important to you. And it's not a time to be reserved. It's a time to risk and this following is this involvement of, of risk and, and, pers- and pursuing. And when you get to the Old Testament, it's the term that's used for those who, who study with a rabbi. Everything about your life is following this rabbi. The, the goal is to take everything that the rabbi knows and to receive it so that you can get that same knowledge. And so you... You do what the rabbi does and you think like the rabbi thinks and your goal is to say what the rabbi says and your, and your goal is to act like the rabbi acts and ultimately to, to learn everything that the rabbi knows about the law so that you can be as holy as this rabbi. And Jesus says to the people, if you follow me, if you have that kind of pursuit of me, that kind of desire for me, that yearning that even will risk with me, You'll not just learn the law, but your life will be transformed. You'll be made new. You will experience the joy of life as you were created to experience. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the light of Israel. Or I'm the light of any other nation. He says, I'm the light of the world. There is a sense among the Jewish people and quite frankly among us as Christians that this word of Jesus and the word of God about being light is exclusive. That there are some people who are excluded from it. That it is, it is intended only for a select special group of people. And Jesus seems to shatter that image. You know, we sometimes get frustrated with the world and we get fed up with the world and all the darkness. Quite frankly, if we get fed up with the world, think how much more God does. All the ways in which we reject him, all the ways in which the world turns from him, all of the evil and sin that, that we perpetrate in the world, in the face of God, If anyone would give up on the world and turn his back on the world, it would be God. He has a right to, and yet he doesn't. Instead, in the midst of all of the darkness that we create and promote, what does he do? He sends light to us, even his own son, to be light to us in our darkness. I don't think it's a coincidence that John has this, this dialogue takes place right after the story of the woman caught in adultery. Here is a woman who, in the eyes of the people who bring her to Jesus, these religious leaders, she is nothing. She has absolutely no value. She is less than human in their eyes. Because, I mean, they, they use her, they humiliate her. For what? So they can trap Jesus. Who does that? Treat people that way. People who say this person has no value. And Jesus changes the whole conversation. 
And he treats her with respect and value. And in essence says, the darkness of your life, I'm light to that. And even though everybody else, the people around you think you're an outcast, you're not to me. You're welcome in my light. And when this chapter is done, and you start chapter 9, you have the story of the man who was born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents? Because somebody had to sin for this to happen. That's one of those moments where I can see Jesus just shaking his head and saying, you still don't get it, do you? It's because we live in a fallen, broken world. These kinds of tragedies happen. But I'm going to use this tragedy to bring glory to God. And I've always thought that meant that God would be glorified because people would be so awestruck by the miracle that a man who was born blind now sees. And certainly that's a part of it. But I wonder, the more I think about it, if, if it isn't, if God, Jesus isn't saying that the glory that God gets is because we begin to understand God's heart. God is glorified when we begin to see him as he is. Not as, some, not as a God who excludes people from his light because they aren't worthy, but that his light shines on all people. And if you could put it this way, it seems to me that nothing thrills the heart of God more than people in bondage set free. People who are enslaved by darkness and sin are set free to know life and light and joy and peace. That's the heart of God. That's why Jesus comes. And God is glorified because when we begin to understand that, we see him for who he is. As a God who desires us to experience life, all of us. People that we think deserve it and people who we think don't deserve it. The whole world. And let's be honest, that includes you and me. Because we don't deserve it either. I think sometimes when we live in darkness and we, I don't know, we ignore the light. Some, the darkness can sneak up on us if we're not watching for it. Someone was telling me uh, last week about an experience of going hiking with their wife in the, in the Adirondacks. And they left after lunch and they hiked up this mountain and just had a great time. They sat there and they just looked at the, the beauty of, of creation and nature and just having a wonderful time. And then they realized, okay, let's head back. What they had forgotten is that when you're on top of, this, of the mountain, the light is pretty bright. But as they moved their way down the mountain, they realized it was dusk was settling in. And they brought one little flashlight between the two of them. And so with this little flashlight, and it's getting dark fast, you know how that happens. They were inching their way down the mountain, her holding on to his arm for dear life as he tries to navigate these trails from the top of the mountain down to where they were camping. He said, it just sort of snuck up on us. We didn't realize it was coming that quickly. I think we can get caught up in that where we think, you know, that we're okay and we can handle it and, and we can be the light and we, maybe we don't need as much of Christ. We just, we just we'll, we'll take care of it. 
And the darkness sneaks up on us. And sometimes we just get overconfident. We've had some successes. We've done well in in walking as light in the darkness. And and we start thinking it's about us. As I was pondering that idea, I was thinking back, I don't know, it's probably been maybe almost 30 years. When we were living in Wisconsin uh, and a pastor in a church there in this old farmhouse, I remember one night... I was watching probably a basketball game. I was watching at night, and um, it was getting late. Cindy had gone to bed, and when the game was over, 11, 11.30, I don't remember exactly, uh, I, I turned off the television, and I turned off the lamp next to the couch where I was sitting and realized that there were no other lights on in the house. So now I have this dilemma. Do I turn the lamp back on, walk into the kitchen, turn that light on, come back, turn off the lamp, Go back to the kitchen, turn on the light in the next room, go back to the kitchen, turn that light off. I'm thinking, that's way too much trouble. I mean, I've walked thousands of times from the living room into the kitchen, on into the upstairs to the bedroom. I don't need a light. So I take off walking and I took about four steps and went wham, right into the corner of the doorpost, right in the middle of my head. And I hit that doorpost and of course that knocked me back a little bit. Uh, totally unexpected. And then I heard this clink, clink. I thought, what was that? So I sort of make my way back to the lamp and turn it on and realize I don't have my glasses on anymore. And I hit, I had these plastic frames hit right in the middle of plastic flame. And one lens was lying there and the other lens was lying over there. I don't think I've done that since. I may have, but you know, you get confident. But you know, I was just overconfident about the darkness. Oh, I can handle it. No big deal. When we think we have enough light in us to handle the darkness, we're in danger. It's only when we are following the light, only when we are walking in the light, only when our focus and our desire and our yearning and our want to is Christ the light of the world, can we have any influence on the darkness instead of the darkness having influence on us. You know, we live in a world in these modern times where we have so much access to light. I suspect we probably take it for granted. Most of us probably do. You know, I, I borrowed some items from some people this week of different things, light. Of course, we have some lamps that we plug in. We've got some lanterns, and these are, I think, a little bit decorative. This one's probably a little more uh, realistic. We had one of these once when we were preparing for Y2K, I think, and uh, had the kerosene and you know, the little bags. I could never get the thing lit, so if it, if it had been a disaster, we'd have been in trouble. Well, you know, you plug these things in, you have a, a work light. This one actually is magnetic, and you can stick it onto things, and, and it lights. And you've got the, this flashlight, which is kind of cool. These things pull out. It bends. It, I had actually offers... I had people who wanted me to wear this hard hat with this light on it all day, this, all this morning while I was preaching. Even offered money, but I decided it probably wasn't worth it. <laughs> Distracting. We have all these things of light. We have candles that are lit. We have lights in the room that we turn on. And we get so comfortable and used to it. Just recently, rg e came and redid all of the lights in the church to put in LED units and all free. It was amazing. Thirty-some thousand dollars of, of equipment they would put in. 
And, and I love it. I love the lighting. But the one thing I've discovered is that, you know, in most places you flick the switch and the light comes on. But with LED lights, at least these, there's about a two or three second delay. And it's driving me crazy. Because <laughs> I flick the switch and nothing happens. And at my first thought, every single time, I get fooled every time, is, oh, they burned out or the fuse is blown or the, you know, thing. And then they kick on. We just become so acclimated to light that we take it for granted. And I wonder sometimes if we've been walking with Jesus for a while, it is easy to take it for granted. We're good. We just sort of coast on what we've done. And that never ends well. Back in 1934... Admiral Richard Byrd took an expedition to the South Pole. He set up um, what he called Little America, which was a base uh, by the the, uh, water and uh, had about 60 or 70 men who were stationed at this base. And then they they, they took a, a team of people 125, I think 127 miles toward the South Pole. And they got as far as they could make it with their tractors and equipment. And they dug a hole in the ground eight feet deep. And they put a shack in that hole, 13 feet by 11 feet. Put a roof on it. It was was a prefabricated unit that they put in place. Put a roof on it. And Richard Byrd lived in that shack for five months of the Antarctic winter. For almost the whole time, it was darkness. The sun had gone down. It didn't quite make it up to the horizon. It was almost complete darkness for five months. I like reading that story. I've read the book. It's in his book called Alone. And I've read this book Almost every winter I read it. I like reading it the winter because it sort of feels like you're there. You know, he talks about, you know, the, yeah, the average temperature today was minus 60. We had a warm, a warm front came through and the temperature rose to minus five. And it felt awesome, you know. And he talks about all of the, the cold and the snow and trying to work with the meteorological equipment, which is why he was there. And frostbite and just all the things that he went, went through. Unfortunately, the the stove that they put into the shack had some venting problems, and he almost died of carbon monoxide. In fact, they came and got him earlier than they were supposed to because they began to figure out something wasn't right. But he talks about his experiences, and it's fascinating to, to me to read this, to be alone by yourself for five months in the darkness. He had some some light available. Remember, this is 1934. He had some light available to him. He had a little lantern, sort of like that one, that illuminated a bit of a circle around him. He also had a gasoline-powered light that would light up the whole room. And he said, "I, I always wanted that light on because it was it lit everything, but he said it also emitted fumes. And I had to be careful about how much gasoline I used because I only had a certain amount. And so I would ration that using that light. 
But he said, after a while, I began to crave light like a, a thirsty man craves water. He said, there were times where the fumes were almost so overpowering to me I couldn't take it. But I still ran that gas-powered light because I had to have light. And then he makes this statement. Until you've been through that kind of an experience, you really have no idea how utterly precious light really is. Jesus comes to us and says, I'm the light of the world. I have come to give you light, to fill your life, to flood this world with light so that you can live, so that you can know my joy and peace and grace and mercy and truth, so that you can be all that you were created to be. If you just... Follow me. Surrender to me. Light is God's gift to us. Let's go claim our inheritance as his children. Holy Father, thank you for Jesus, the light of the world. Forgive us when we take Christ for granted. Open our eyes to see and to walk in the light. Through Christ we pray. Amen.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.